We're going to study tonight a tshuva of the Marik, Rav Yosef Kalon, great 15th, 15th century posik. We've had several tshuvas of him in the past. Some of the ones we've studied, he, he seems to have a number of important ones that deal with Jewish communities in medieval Europe, community affairs, relationships of communities to each other, sections of communities to each other, which is the area we'll be discussing tonight. <coughs> He has a number of very important tshuvas in Choshen Mishpat areas, as we've just said, questions about relationships between individuals, individuals and communities, multiple communities, and the tshuva we're going to do tonight is one of those. It's a somewhat complicated question, it's the kind of question it'll be easier to just read his description and explain it of the question inside, rather than try to summarize it, but by way of introduction, I am just going to mention before we start, that taxation in those times apparently worked somewhat different from the way it does in the modern era. Today, taxation is individual-based. Individuals file personal income tax returns, businesses file business income tax returns, corporate tax returns, but basically each person, each organization, each business deals with its taxes. It's a matter between it and the government. Taxes are not really communal. It seems from, I'm not an expert in medieval history or the history of taxation, but it seems that in the medieval period, through much of Jewish history, much of uh, Jewish history of the last millennium or so, taxes were often levied by the government on the Jewish community as a whole. And the community then had to figure out how to apportion these taxes upon its members. This was often, as you can imagine, the subject of uh, great acrimony. And there were often disputes that arose between different factions in the community, different members of the community, how the burden of these taxes should be, should be borne by, by, by each other. Obviously, uh, obviously it, it, it's, simpler in a, it's simpler in a certain sense the way we do it today. The government taxes each person and each business individually, but, the, but much of the halakhic literature deals with cases that arose out of the fact that the government would... The government would assess taxes communally, and it would be up to the community to figure out how to share that burden among its members. The ultimate subject of the tshuva tonight is going to have to do with yeyush of a chov, has to do with writing off a debt. The, the basic question we're going to get to after all the details of the circumstances, it, the, fun, the fundamental question is one that has great significance for Choshen Mishpat, for civil law in general, if someone writes off a debt, gives up hope of collecting a debt, does that actually serve in halacha to cancel the debt? If, if, the, if he decides that the, the debtor is insolvent, will, will never be able to pay it back, forget the question of a formal bankruptcy proceeding, but he simply decides this debt is a bad debt and he writes it off and he completely gives up hope of recovering it, does that in itself in halacha serve to cancel the debt? It's going to take us a little while to get there, though, so just bear that in mind. That's going to be the ultimate question at stake in this tshuva, which is a very important tshuva, much discussed by later poskim. A very important question, much discussed by later poskim. We'll begin by trying to untangle the, the case itself as he presents it. So the question is, al-dvar ha-he there were 5,000 units of some currency, uh, that uh, what happened was as follows. Asher shal ha-adon yehudim halva. The local nobleman, a duke apparently, had borrowed, quote-unquote, borrowed, had asked for a loan from his Jewish subjects. And he, he claimed it would be a loan. 
Va'amar, and he promised them, He said, the way he'll pay them back is they, they would pay him periodically tax revenue. There was a standard, standard schedule, a standard uh, tax framework that they would owe. And he told them, lend me money today, and I'll, that money will offset your future tax obligations. So basically, he asked for essentially for an advance payment against the tax revenues that he would be collecting down the road. So they did it. They, they gave him the money. It wasn't entirely clear whether they had a choice in the matter, whether they did this willingly or not, but they did it. One way or another, the wealthier members, the, the bankers of the Jewish community, we'll see more, and more about that later, lent money to the duke, with the understanding that they would receive their repayment when the standard regular taxes came due, he would use that money to offset the taxes that they owed. However, before those taxes came due, Jews often lived in dangerous times, in dangerous, uh, in dangerous circumstances. The Adon implemented, instigated some type of alila, some type of libel, Use your imagination what it was, a blood libel, desecration of the host, you know, who knows what it was. They had a few favorites they used to use, the Christians, but uh, Jews were obviously often the subject of these alilos, these uh, libels were very dangerous. Li- libels back then doesn't mean that you're embarrassed because you're, you've been insulted in the newspapers. Libel means that you're liable to have a mob uh, you know, break into your house, burn it down, murder your family and you and so on. So the Adon, in this case, the Duke himself, was behind some kind of dangerous libel. He threatened, on account of this libel, to seize all their property. They resolved this matter by paying money. They, 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 he agreed he wouldn't take all their money, wouldn't kill them, I guess, wouldn't take all their money, but they settled, they reached some kind of financial understanding. He no longer was going to honor the, the, the promises he had made regarding the loan. Whatever they agreed to pay him, in addition, he was going to uh, cancel any obligation, unilaterally cancel it, or they agreed to him, I guess, because of the desperate circumstances, that he was going to <coughs> no longer pay, repay the 5000 that he had borrowed from them. Part of the settlement they reached was if they would pay their standard taxes in full, with no reduction because of the 5,000 loan. So, I guess they were lucky that things weren't worse, but basically, because of this alila, whatever it was, the Duke was no longer going to honor the loan that he had, the, his, his, loan, his loan obligation that he had made to the community. This Duke was then murdered about six months, he says, after they reached the settlement of, uh, about the libel. And God now smiled favorably on the Jews. Hashem Yisparach, Nosan, as a Yehudim, Lechein, Be'enei, Haduchsas, the Duchess. Apparently this man's widow, who now took over, the Duke's widow was now, was now the boss. So she <coughs> was willing to be more honorable, more favorable to the Jews. And also Be'enei Asarim, her advisors, the other noblemen involved. They were now, we, we don't have an exact location of where this all took place. Uh, I don't know if this is Germany, Italy, not clear where this all was. But the, the Duchess, who was now in charge after her husband had been murdered, was now, for whatever reason, personal integrity, some kind of self-interest, whatever it was, but she was now willing to, to, to be more fair and more lenient with the Jews, and she agreed that she would indeed honor 
the 5,000 obligation that her late husband had had to the Jews, and she would do the, the original plan. She would now use that 5,000, uh, the loan of 5,000, to offset some of the taxes. So the Jews now received a windfall that they would indeed get to pay 5,000 in taxes less than they would have under the stricter regime of the dead duke. And now, Now there was a machlokas between the Jewish community and between certain individuals in the community. The community as a whole had one position on this matter, and certain individual Jewish businessmen had a different position on the matter. What was the machlokas? The ktas yechidim, these individuals, they had chanus. Chanus literally means a shop, but in marik parlance, in, in medieval Jewish parlance, it often means a bank a uh, lending operation, a, a shop in which to lend money, by which they lent money, some kind of bank, essentially. So these, some of these Jews, these Yechidim, they had had a, a bank, they had, had capital, in other words, when this uh, ill-fated loan had been made to the Duke, when they lent the 5000 to the to the Duke, and they paid their share into that loan, meaning, The rule was, Taxes were typically paid by the rich, by those who had money. This loan essentially was a form of tax. It was an advance on, on, on tax revenues. So when the Duke said, I need 5000 a loan of 5000 it was understood that the standard norms in the community was, were that those who had money, the bankers, those who had capital, those who had access to, uh, to money, would be the ones who would lay out the money. So whoever the bankers were at that time, whoever the people who possessed capital were, they were the ones who pooled their resources, however it was divided among them, but they had some arrangement. These things happened often enough. There were standard usages here. So the bankers who had been in possession of funds, who had been going concerns at the time of the original loan, these Yechidim, who were part of the Dintara now, they had been bankers back then. They had had money. They had laid out this money to the loan. However, B'Terem Eskima had Duxis, before the Duchess, Yarim Hoda, had agreed to uh, go back and honor the loan, these bankers had had a reversal of fortune, they had lost their money, difficult times, and they were no longer wealthy. They, no, they, they were no longer men of means. So the current, in terms of the current taxes, they would not be the ones who would be paying it, they would not be the ones who would, have, who would be making a significant contribution toward current taxes. They were the ones who had funded this loan some, some time back, but they were not the ones who were currently the, the, wealthy, the wealthy individuals who'd be paying taxes. So these individuals say, look, we're, we, may, we may not be men of means now, we're not going to be the ones upon whom the tax burden, the current tax burden falls, but we, let, we laid out money. We used to have money. 5,000 of our money, or some portion of that 5,000 was our money. We, we, we laid out some portion of that $5,000 loan. And we want to be paid back. Now that the, as, long, as long as the Duke was not paying back our money, we had to write it off. What are we going to do? We, 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 we can't fight with the Duke. As long as the Duke is not uh, being honest, is not being honorable, we had no recourse to get our money back. But now that the Duchess says, I am going to honor the obligation of 5000 I'm going to do it, she said, by offsetting the taxes, as per the original plan, but essentially she's agreeing to repay the loan. We have a share in that loan. We made that loan. So even though we are not the current taxpayers... We are the, the creditors with respect to that loan. So when that loan comes in, in the form of reduced tax revenue, we want our share. So we want you, the community, to make sure that we receive our share of the loan that we made. We made this loan. 
the loan had its ups and downs in terms of our ability to collect it, but now it's being collected again. So when you receive the reduction in taxes, make sure that some of that revenue, our fair share, goes to us. That's what they said. Um, because why? The principle is, Kikasher siu just as we aided in the expense when the loan was made, we paid our, our hard-earned money into that loan. So we, we were the ones who, who, who laid out the money for the loan. Da'inu halvas, chameshes halafim, kein yistayu berevach, so too we deserve to receive when the loan comes due and the money gets paid back, we deserve to have our share of the profit. When you get your tax reduction, when you get, whether it's a refund or a reduction in how much you pay, more likely, that money belongs to us. We want our share. We had a quarter of it or a fifth of it or whatever it was. So 1,000, let's say, belongs to us. So when you receive your tax reductions, turn over 1,000, turn over 1,000 to us. Now again, had they still been rich, had they still had the status quo been maintained, had the overall distribution of wealth in the Jewish community remained constant, this issue would have been moot because, okay, you made the loan, but you're, you're now on the hook for taxes now because you're rich and, and, and the tax burden falls on you. So it doesn't really matter. It, 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 it's a wash because, yes, that you deserve to get paid back for the, for the loan, but that, that's coming in the form of tax abatements, and you're the ones paying taxes. So as long as the relative wealth of the people in the community would have remained the same, this would have been largely a non-issue. Because whatever arrangement had been in place originally was going to be in place now. Whether you treat the 5000 as a repayment to the old loan or as a new windfall, it wouldn't have mattered because the players in the game were the same and the relative, it wouldn't have mattered. The problem was, these people had lost their fortunes, so they would not be the ones, they, they would not have a significant role in the current tax expenditures, but they still wanted to receive the reduction in some form because they were the ones who made the loan. That was their position. I mean, at Kahilostanim, in the fourth paragraph, the, the community, meaning the, the rest of the community, those who were not the ones who had lost their fortune, the, the, the bulk of the community, they said, no, in principle, you're right. In principle, had, uh, had this loan remained in good standing all along, it sounds like they would have agreed, even though now you, you've gone broke and now you've lost your fortune. Nevertheless, we would, honor the, we would honor your role in making the loan and return to you any revenue that we're saving because any, any, any money we're saving because of your, your loan, we would honor it. Their position was, in principle, you're right. However, this loan was gone. This loan was, you wrote it off. The money was lost. Certainly, he, he called it a loan. Yes, the Duke said it's a loan. But to me, you were the lamppost, and we know this Duke, we'll see more about this throughout the tshuva, this Duke had a long, long, well-established habit of taking advantage of the Jews, of refusing to honor his commitments, of breaking his word, of, uh, of stealing money from the Jews, of being con- confi- conf- confiscatory, and in, in general, he was, a, uh, he was ruthless when it came to money. So he called it a loan, yes. Uh, for, for politeness' sake, he called it a loan. But, but it was clear that this money was never coming back. Until the Duke was assassinated and replaced by the, his more reasonable spouse, this money was gone. Alone, yes, officially, but in practice it was a tax. The money's gone. The Kolchkenis, they said, we explicitly asked him to please use this loan to offset the tax, and he said, no, tough luck, you're not getting it back, he said. Whether he had a legal justification, whether he was just, I'm stronger than you and I do what I want, I'm a Christian and you're a Jew, I don't know what his rationale was. Whatever it was, in practice, that was his position. His position was, you are not getting this money back. When they asked him, please give us an abatement on our taxes because of the loan, he said, no, not happening, pay the taxes in full. Certainly you wrote off the loan at that point, he says. 
that they settled for 13,000 because of the Alila. And not only did he make them pay 13,000, apparently, he also made them pay the regular taxes in full. And he repeatedly refused to honor the loan. He said, you're paying me 13000 extra because of the Alila, and you're paying all your taxes in full, and you're not getting any abatement because of the loan. So at that point, the loan was done. The loan was gone. There, there was no chance. That every, we, all, we all knew that this loan was hopeless. Except for the good fortune of the Duke getting assassinated, this loan was not ever going to be repaid. He had this uh, unfair and dishonest attitude toward Jews until the day he died. So the money was lost. While the Duke was alive, the, the, the monies were, were lost. They were, they were avudos. After the Duke died, yes, okay, the, the, the Duchess, in her integrity, her Yosher Lev, decided to honor the loan and give them a tax abatement. That's a windfall. That, that's new money that, that's being given to the community. Right now, the Duchess decided to give the community 5000 Yes, in her mind, it's probably because, it's clearly because of the original loan. It's the same sum at the same 5000 that we talked about uh, previously. But that's something new. That's viewed as a new payment, a new, a new grant to the community, a new favor to the community. And since it's a new, a new payment to the community, who gets it? Who gets this windfall? The current taxpayer base. Whichever part of the community is currently paying taxes, they're the ones who get this abatement. It's new money. It's not connected halakhically to the loan that was made. And therefore, the abatement should go to those who are paying taxes today, not to those Jews who are no longer taxpayers because they don't have enough money anymore, but who had been rich at the time of the original loan, but now are not. They're not in, they're, they're not in play anymore. This money is not the same money that they lent. Those 5,000 were lost. Those 5,000 are gone, they're erased. <coughs> this money she's giving us now is new money. As, as, as a windfall of new money, it goes, the, the Kahila argued, it goes to the current taxpayer base. Rabbi, I, Rabbi, yes, yes. So there's a question here. What, what does the role of duress have to play in here? We know that there's been, it was duress throughout. Duress with regard to the loan, regard to the um, defamation, uh, argument and everything else. So they they didn't really write it off. They had no choice in the matter. So there was no there was no uh, a formal document. And it's also the reality of there was they could not do anything. In fact, they saved the community uh, by not doing anything about it. So we, we're talking about here formalities, but we have to also do the reality that there is no document that says they. they they, uh, they uh, give up on their loan? There is... Right, so... so the, the reality of the, the, the Duke being basically an SOB. Right, so Max is pointing out that the, the writing off of the debt was clearly against their will. They, 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 they did not, the community did not feel any kindness toward the Duke. They weren't out to uh, help him out. They weren't doing it out of a spirit of brotherly love and cooperation. They were writing it off because... Uh, in the real world, they, they knew that the chances were slim to none that they would ever get paid back. So the question, that is exactly the question we're going to deal with tonight. What is the halachic uh, ramification of such a position? If, if a creditor says, I really want, would love to collect this debt, but given the circumstances as they are, whether it's because of the, whether it's because of the refusal of the debtor to pay, because of his uh, financial collapse, he can't pay, if, if, if a creditor says, I really want to get this money, but realistically I know I'm not going to, 
So what is the halachic ramification of such, a, of, of such an act of writing off? So just to give a little introduction before we start seeing the tshuva, there are two, two halachic principles that are somewhat relevant here. One of them, less relevant, is mechila, forgiveness of a debt. The other is yeyush, which we'll discuss in a moment. Yeyush, giving up hope. Mechila is, a, is an act of, is a conscious act, a, a voluntary act of forgiving a debt. A person says, I forgive this debt that you have to me. That's mechila, that works. It can be even verbal, generally, certainly in writing, with a Kenyan. You don't need any fancy ceremony. If a person says, you owe me the money, I'm mochel, I'm hereby mochel the debt, I forgive it, the debt is gone. That, the debt is simply erased, it can be done with a simple verbal declaration. Now, if that's what we were doing, then what Max said would be correct, we would have to start analyzing if there was mechila, was it done under, was, was it done, uh, was it freely given, was it coerced, was it under duress? That would be a, a major question. Anytime there's a transaction you make in Choshen Mishpat, a sale, a gift, a get, a person gives a get, a bill of divorce, anytime a person does something where he's, only he is authorized to do the transaction, only he's authorized to buy and sell with his own money, only he's authorized to give a get to his wife, only he's authorized to forgive a debt. Anytime someone, someone engages in a transaction where his own, uh, where, where his, he's the one in charge, his, his, uh, his participation is required, we, if he gives his participation under duress, that becomes a major topic in halacha. Is that valid nonetheless or not? That's not the topic we're going to consider today. We're not dealing with any kind of transactional act of forgiveness. They did not forgive this debt. They had no interest in forgiving this debt. We're dealing with what Halacha calls yeyush, giving up hope. The, the, the Talmud in various places, Baba Kama, Baba Metziah, the Talmud deals with a, with a concept called yeyush, a person who has title to certain property, a person who has certain rights, but for some reason he is miyayish, he gives up hope on ever collecting the, the, that to which he's entitled and ever realizing certain rights, certain property, that's called yeyush, giving up hope, and in certain consequences, that itself terminates whatever rights he has. Now that's always involuntary. The, yeyush for, the examples we're going to talk about are yeyush, when someone steals something from you, the, the owner might be miyayish, he might give up hope of ever retain, retrieving his property. Aveda, the Gemara talks about Someone loses something and realizes he lost it. He says, I'm never going to find it again. There's no simon on it. Uh, it's never going to get back to me. Vaila chesar and kiss. Woe is me that I've, I've suffered this loss. That's called yeyush. And by its very definition, yeyush is involuntary. Yeyush is, is, I would much rather not be in the situation, but I am. And given the situation, it's hopeless. I'm never going to get it back. So there are certain places in the Talmud where yeyush itself can serve to sever any rights you have, can sever any connection between you and the property. And that's the discussion that the Marik and later Postkim engage in. How does Yeish work in the context of a debt? If a creditor is miyayish, he, he gives up hope, he says, I'm never going to be able to collect this debt. In modern language, in accounting language, we say he wrote off the debt, he, he, he wrote it off as being bad, he wrote down the debt. So does that have any halakhic effect on his ability to collect the debt in the future? Certainly it was against his will, but the question is, does that have any bearing in halacha? So Marik says as follows. He says, since it was clear that the Adon, the duke, the dead duke, was, was not planning on honoring the debt, was not planning on giving the promised tax abatement of 5,000, it was that was clear, that was not debatable, his intentions were made tolerably clear, 
Then the first step is Pshita the, the existence of Yeish is clear. We don't have a we don't have a, a recorded documented statement where the creditor said, This is hopeless, we're never going to collect this. We don't have an accounting write-off or something from their books where they said this debt is gone. Nevertheless, the Marik says the circumstances are, are sufficiently clear that Halacha presumes Yeish. This is a principle as he's going to discuss throughout the Chuva that appears throughout Ela Matthias, that in, in that, that in many cases, in many cases, the circumstances themselves indicate to us that there certainly was Yeish, even if we don't have any explicit uh, observation of Yeish, it's not necessary. Sometimes the circumstances allow us to presume that there is Yeish. And not only that, the presumption is so strong, even if they flatly deny it, even if they claim that they were never Yeish, that uh, we, we disregard that. Maria continues, Even if these individuals, these bankers who are now suing, former bankers who are now suing for the for the money, to the, for their share of the money, they say we were not miyayish, we never gave up hope. Ella, they had bitachon. Samuel Hashem Yisbarachas They trusted God, that God would induce the duke to behave more equitably toward them. They hoped that God would influence him to uh, behave uh, more honorably toward them. Even now he was saying he's not going to. Hope springs eternal within the human breast. Maybe in the future he would be willing to do it even though there have been years where he's been uh, unreasonable to them, nevertheless, they said, we hoped in the future he would start cooperating. Says the Marik, that is not a valid argument in halacha. This argument has no halachic merit. They have no, they have no ability to say, we were not miyayish. We simply look at whether the circumstances warrant yish objectively. He says, we have to look at the objective circumstances, whether they yield, a, whether a normal person would be miyayish, the, the so-called reasonable man. Since in this case, the Marik says, it's clear to any reasonable observer, any normal person would have been miyayish. Getting a debt back from a duke who has decided to behave like this is hopeless, because he, he broke his word multiple times, and he refused to honor his commitment to give them the tax abatement. Certainly this guy, we know he was uh, an, a financial predator in general. He stole money from the Jews many times. Even money he didn't have, it wasn't a loan. He would just take money from them. Certainly money that he already had, the loan, he certainly wasn't paying back a loan he already had. This is how Jews lived. You know, every time you complain about the IRS or something today, just remember, it used to be a whole lot worse. That he certainly never, intend, he never intended to pay back. He, was, uh, he, he called it a loan. To make, it, to make it easier for them to swallow when they handed over the money. It was basically just uh, extortion from them. He says, Pshita, it was clear to everyone they were not getting this money back were it not for the fortunate, fortunate uh, event of his assassination and replacement by his uh, more tractable wife, widow. Pshita, Dalav Kolkminayu, to say, Lo Ashnu. He brings proofs to this. He brings a, uh, he brings a Gemara El Matthias that makes this point. The Gemara says, that if you, have, if you have a situation of uh, where there's Yeish, where the circumstances warrant Yeish, even if a person says, Omid Vitzavach, he's, he's standing there crying, I'm not Miyayish, I'm not Miyayish, he's calling out, I'm not Miyayish, doesn't matter, that's, uh, we, we dismiss what, he, what he's saying. Since the circumstances are so clear that they warrant Yeish objectively, Halacha has a presumptive Yeish, even if the person is uh, claiming that he's not Miyayish. So no, even. I think the comparison to the IRS. It's completely unfair. I think it's a cheap blow. 
the IRS follows rules and regulations, that don't you can appeal to them. That, 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 was exactly my, that was exactly my point. My point was that even though people sometimes are upset at what the IRS does, I said it's nothing like this. The IRS is a... That's, that was exactly what... There is no comparison. That's exactly what I was saying. There's no, there's no comparison. People sometimes feel put upon by the IRS, but there's nothing compared to what, uh, to what Jews used to have to go through. People have legitimate complaints about the IRS. The IRS is not a uh, perfect institution. People, the IRS loses cases in court as well. The IRS, you know, it's a well-meaning organization by and large. But it's, uh, you know, it's, you know, people, I think, have some legitimate complaints against it. But my point was, yes, I agree with you. It's nothing like what, what Jews had to suffer. And, uh, yeah, maybe I should have stated the contrast more sharply. But I, I basically agree with you, yes. There, there is no comparison between the IRS today, which is a law-abiding organization, which is a, uh, yes, absolutely. So, so, even if someone, so, so the Marik says, that even if someone is omed b'tzoveach, even if someone is, uh, even if someone is omed b'tzoveach, he's claiming he was not miyayish, since he, since objectively you should be miyayish in such a case, it is, uh, <coughs> it is, then it, we, we apply yayish, we assume there's yayish. Narek then goes on, he brings various other arguments to this effect, that we assume yayish in certain cases, even, even, even in the absence of an explicit uh, con- confession of Yeish, we, we assume Yeish in various cases. He goes on and on at some, at some length about this, proving from various Gemaras that if the circumstances are strong enough, if they're clear enough that the, if they're clear enough that, that it's hopeless, Halacha assumes Yeish even, even and, and disregards any, uh, any statements by the person himself. He says, uh, he says, this, this duke was so rapacious, was so unprincipled, Again, not just loans, he, loans that he took out, he wouldn't pay back, even money that was in people's safes, where nothing was safe from the, from the greed of this, of this duke, he says, when he was alive, to the extent, he says, that, that many Jews wanted to just flee, it was intolerable living under this person, he says, they wanted to travel somewhere else because they were so scared of him, and so it was, he was so difficult to live with. So certainly, he says, uh, certainly he, 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 he declared his intention to refuse to repay this, to repay this loan, Certainly, that, that, that's even more avud, even more lost than the classic example of Chazal, Aveda Shashat Fanar, if a river sweeps away in Aveda, that's considered automatic, presumptive Yeish, it's hopeless, you're never getting it back once the river swept it away downstream. And, and, and he's true, he says, because of the chesed of the duchess, the current, the, current, the current sovereign, because of her chesed, she decided to be nice to the Jews, he says, that's Menashemayim, that's not a... That, that doesn't reveal the money was never really lost. The money was lost, and this is a gift, essentially. She, she's giving to the Jews. She feels bad for what her husband did, or for whatever her reasons are. This is something new, he says, and this goes to the current taxpayers, the current banks, who are the ones who fund the tax obligations of the community, and this does not go to those who had been in the business beforehand but are no longer involved, because this is, this, there has been a complete disconnect between the initial obligation and the, and the current uh, refund of the money, and because of the Yeish, Yeish terminates their, their initial rights, and their initial rights are, have, 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 are terminated and have been evaporated. So the Marik goes on at some length in this vein, and then in the, at the very end of the third page, beginning of the very end of the, very end of the third page, beginning of the se- very end of the second page, I'm sorry, beginning of the third page, he brings a, an apparently contrary ruling of somebody called Rabbeinu bin Yamin an early authority named Rabbeinu Binyamin. Rabbeinu Binyamin says that debts, are, debts always remain in effect, 
And even even in a case where the creditor explicitly did confess Yeish, he said, that is the classic formulation of Yeish, who woe is, woe is me that I've lost money. This does not count as Yeish with respect to a debt. So Rabbeinu Binyamin says, there's no Yeish with regard to debts. Debts are not, are not cancelled by Yeish. As an aside, we should note that in, in certain ways, even though you can be mochel a debt by a mere verbal declaration, in certain ways, debts are much more, much harder to, uh, to erase in halacha than they are in law. Debts can be erased by mechila, they can be erased by shmitas ksafim, this year is shmitas ksafim, but shmitas ksafim is uh, largely obsolete, bismanazeh, in Ashkenaz, the minog is that Shemitah Tzafim is technically not even in effect. Anyway, we write prosbols. The minog is to write prosbols. Shemitah Tzafim may have once been a, a significant factor in Jewish economic life, but it no longer is. Um, halacha has no native notion of bankruptcy. Halacha has no native notion of statutes of limitations. You can lend money. You can have no further communication with the debtor for 50 years. 50 years later, you can approach him and say... Remember, you don't remember, 50 years ago I lent you money, you owe me the money, please pay immediately. That is perfectly uh, valid in halacha. Debts never just get erased, putting aside Shemitah. And you know, there's no statute of limitations, there's no bankruptcy. There are questions about whether halacha recognizes such secular laws in terms of din Mulchusadina or Minog, but that's beyond the scope of our talk tonight. Debts are pretty uh, durable entities in halacha. And Rabbeinu Binyamin says... Even Yeish doesn't work. Even Yeish, even if a person says, kiss, he wrote off his debt, he said, this debt is bad, we're not getting it back, Let, let's restructure our business on the assumption that this debt, that this money is lost. Nevertheless, the debt remains in effect. At any point in the future, the creditor is perfectly within his rights to, to change his mind and to decide maybe this debt is worth pursuing afterward. That's what Rabbeinu Benyamin ruled, and that would seem diametrically opposite in blatant contradiction to Marik's own ruling that when, that when the community gave up on collecting this debt from the duke, the debt was erased. So the, the Marik says it's actually not a contradiction. What, what, what Rabbeinu Binyamin says does not bear on our case. What Rabbeinu Binyamin says is different, and it does not apply in our case. Why not? Chuva Gnuva he says, this is a misapplied uh, precedent, he says. Why shouldn't Yeish work for a debt? And here the Marik makes one of his key arguments, which has been the subject of tremendous debate by later authorities. Marik says, why shouldn't Yeish work? Yeish is a Talmudic rule. As we said, it applies in Bav Metziah, it applies in Bav Akama. He says, even Maman Ben, an actual Aveda, a person lost his bicycle, and he's Miyayish. Yeish works, even though you have firm title on a specific piece of property, this bicycle is mine. But if, but if I lose it and I'm a Yayish with regard to the bicycle, I think I'm never going to get it back. Yayish works. Many Mishnayas and Elam So certainly a Chov, which is an intangible asset that you owe, you, you have, an, you have an, an outstanding obligation. Someone has money to you. Oh, someone has an obligation to you, but you don't own anything concrete. Suffolk Asi, Suffolk Lo Asi. Debts are always tenuous. They might get paid back. There's always credit risk, he says. Kolshkein to Mahani Bayayish. It's Afortiori, Kalvachomer. Yeish should work. That is the heart of the Merik's argument. So it, it, it's not reasonable to take Rabbeinu Binyamin at face value. Of course, Yeish should work for a chov as well. So what does Rabbeinu Binyamin mean? Apparently, he's a significant enough authority that we should take him seriously. So what does he mean? Says the Marik. He says it depends what kind of Yeish we're talking about. 
Yeish, where the circumstances don't necessarily warrant Yeish, but it happened to be this owner is, uh, is pessimistic, he's, uh, he doesn't have a positive attitude, this creditor just gives up easily. He's okay, you know, it's going to be too hard for me to collect this debt, I'm probably not going to get it back. He's just a worrier and a pessimist. That kind of yeish, that's what we call weak yeish. That yeish does not work with respect to debt. Because every debt is, every debt is really uh, tenuous to begin with. Every debt has some element of uncertainty. So the fact that he's even more uncertain doesn't really change the overall picture. He wasn't sure he would get it back. Okay, every debt you're not sure you're going to get back. That, that's inherent, to the, that's, that's inherent to, the, to the nature of debt. So therefore he says, such a yeish, that's what Rebbein Ben means. If there's nothing objectively that says that this debt is hopeless... You just happen to be Yayish, that kind of Yayish does not work with respect to debts. However, in the kind of Yayish we're talking about, where the objective circumstances clearly indicate that the debt is gone, that, that, that's like a Veda Shashat Fanar, these types of cases where we don't, we don't care about your explicit Yayish because the Yayish is built into the circumstance, it's clear that there is no, no chance of ever getting the money back. Such a case, it's Pashat Yayish works, he says. Our case, again, where this duke was, uh, had a well-known habit of uh, cheating the Jews and of stealing their money, he says, certainly, certainly it's a kalvachamr, the yeish should work. Certainly, he says, yeish does work. Again, in a case where the stamalava yeish, in a case where the yeish can't be presumed, you have to rely on his explicit yeish, there, Rabbeinu Benyamin says, uh, we could say that, 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 that even though he said he's miyayish, it doesn't work for a debt. Every, every debt is really a suffix to begin with, and yet the debt is still collectible. So that kind of yeish doesn't work for a debt. However, he says, our yeish, yeish built into the circumstances. Rabbeinu Binyamin's language was, he says, ein This yeish doesn't work for a debt. This yeish, the yeish of an arbitrary yeish, where the circumstances are not hopeless, that kind of yeish doesn't work for a debt. But the yeish we're talking about, the yeish which is a product of the circumstances, the yeish which is built in, to the, the details of the case, he says, then certainly that kind of yeish certainly works, he says, and, uh, and, and therefore that is the Merrick's conclusion, that's his bottom line, that such a yeish does work for a debt. In a case where the, any reasonable observer, any objective observer would say, this debt is hopeless, this debt is not going to be paid back, then we, we presume yeish automatically, even in the absence of any explicit yeish, and that yeish is so strong, a yeish that is uh, defined by circumstances, that's a product of circumstances, that yeish is so strong that it works even for a debt, even in the absence of any explicit confession of yeish, even if they're claiming they weren't miyayish, and that yeish works even for a debt, that erases the debt, and so that is the final ruling of the marik, that these bankers who had been wealthy at the time of the initial loan, but were not wealthy now, their debt was erased when the duke was uncooperative, when he took it and refused to repay it, now the Duchess is giving the community five thousand dollars, five thousand, whatever they were. That is windfall profit. That does not that does not accrue to the initial bankers who are no longer uh, no longer bankers. That goes to the current bankers, the current people responsible for the community's taxation, and so it will be used as an abatement against any taxes currently being assessed to the community, and will not be uh, and will will not be given to those who are no longer bankers, but just because they were at the time of the initial debt. This Marek, as I mentioned, his basic rule that Yeish does in principle work for a debt, at least the strong Yeish, where, the, where it's built into the circumstances, this was the subject of tremendous dispute by the later Achronim. Most notably, the Chachem Tzvi, Rav Tzvi Ashkenazi, has a lengthy, lengthy 
multiple lengthy critiques of the Marek in his notes to the Shulchan Aruch, to the Taz, as well as in his Chuvas. He argues at great length that the Marek is wrong, that the Rebbeinu Binyamin is correct, Rebbeinu Binyamin at face value is correct, no Yeish ever works, no Yeish ever works with respect to a debt, even strong Yeish. And he says, what's your whole basis for saying Yeish works? From Aveda? He says Aveda is fundamentally different. Aveda, it depends when the Yeish occurs. One of the most elementary, one of the most fundamental rules of Elamitzias is that Yeish only works before anybody picks up the Aveda. If the owner of the Aveda loses hope, says Vailachazar and Kiss, the situation is such that he realizes and gives up hope of finding his Aveda, if that occurs before anybody picks it up, and then someone picks it up, he can keep it. If you have reason to believe that Yeish occurred before you picked up the Aveda, you can keep the Aveda because the owner's title has terminated. But if there was no Yeish at the time you picked it up, if you, the finder, picked it up before the occurrence of Yeish, and the Yeish only occurred after you already had it in your possession, you may not keep it. Yeish does not take effect. As, because once you picked it up, you're Chayev Bashava, you're obligated to return it. That obligation that you now have to, to make sure you return it to the owner, that blocks, that interferes with Yeish, that prevents Yeish from taking effect. As long as you picked it up and, and, and as such acquired an obligation to return it, that prevents any future Yeish from taking effect, says the Chacham Tzvi. Every debt is like that. Every debt, by definition, by the fundamental definition of a debt, as soon as you borrow the money, you have an obligation to return it. It might not be due yet, but you have an obligation to return it when, the, when, when it comes due. So that obligation, he says, fundamentally blocks any Yeish from, take, from taking effect, that's why he says it's different from Gzela, it's different from Aveda. In those cases, Yeish works. It only works if it happened before, before, before the Gazel stole it, before the, before the person... Before, it would only work if it happened before. Gazel doesn't work at all. Gazel, even though there are opinions that Yeish does work, you still have to pay the money back. Yeish means you can keep the item you stole. You still have to make restitution. You still have to pay whatever it's worth. Ye- Aveda, if, if, he, if he was in the Yeish before you picked it up, then you can keep it, but if he's Miyayish after you picked it up, you already have a Chiyuf Hashav, an obligation to return it, Yeish did not, does not work anymore. Says the Chacham Tzvi, that's exactly the case of debt. As soon as you borrow money, you have an immediate obligation to return it, not now, but return it when it's payable. That obligation you have, that prevents any future Yeish from taking effect, and therefore, and therefore, Yeish absolutely, in any manner, shape, or form, does not work for a debt. You can write off debts all you want, you can uh, give up hope. The situation can be structurally that it's impossible for you to ever collect it. It's hopeless, objectively hopeless. None of that matters. Since the debtor still has an obligation to repay it, that obligation he has overrides and prevents and interferes with any Yeish from taking effect. And therefore, Yeish simply does not apply to debts. That is the position of the Chacham Tzvi and many other Akron. Ksosachoshin disagrees. Ksosachoshin defends the Marik at, at great length. We're not going to get into the intricacies of his argument. But the Vitzosa Choshen agrees with the Marek, but other Achronim agree with the Chacham Tzvi, the Oren Vatumim, the Nesivas HaMishpat. The Nesivas HaMishpat also agrees with the Chacham Tzvi. He dismisses the Vitzosa saying, Dvarim Shein and Mestavrim. The Vitzosa's arguments are not compelling, he says. He agrees with the, the Chacham Tzvi that the Yeush does not work for debts in general. What about the Marek, he says? He doesn't want to just say the Marek is wrong. Marek was a great authority. So if I feel that the Chacham Tzvi is right, that the Chi of Hashava, the obligation to repay, prevents Yeish from kicking in and taking effect, so how do I explain the Marik? What is the Marik saying? Why does the Marik fail, in his case at least, that Yeish does not work? So the Nesivas has a, a curious idea 
why the case of the Marek, he says, is really super Yeish. Marek distinguishes between ordinary Yeish and Yeish that's built into the circumstances. The Nesiva says it's, there the Yeish is even stronger than that. The Yeish is not just like a river that flooded your, your, your property, he says. There the Yeish is even more powerful. He says, you can't fight City Hall. He says, you can't fight the government. The government has tax power. He says, the government can simply, if, if you owe the government money, if the government owes you money and the government doesn't want to pay, the government simply raises taxes on you to cover, on the community, to cover whatever uh, money it owes you, he says. So it's fundamentally almost meaningless, he says, to, uh, to owe a gov- to, for the government to owe you money if it doesn't want to pay. The government can simply tax you until, uh, until that cancels out, he says, any obligations it has to you. Therefore, he says, that's a case where everyone agrees Yeish works. Marik at least says Yeish works, because it's so fundamentally futile to try to press a claim against the government, well, you know the government will simply raise your taxes until, until uh, you have to give it whatever it wants, and then it'll just give that back to you as payment for your debt. If you really want to, that's what we'll do, the government will say. Just, just okay, you want, us to pay you, you, want us, you want me to pay you money? Fine. You pay me money, taxes, and now we'll call it a wash. That's a case... What kind of government is that? What kind of government is that? So that's an interesting question. That, that's, not, that's not a government that, uh, that we call, that, that we live by. So that's an interesting question. Max is raising an important point, which is, we, as we've discussed many times, Halakha recognizes certain limits on the legitimate exercise of governmental authority. Halakha says governments can pass laws, they can't steal. Governments can't arbitrary, arbitrarily steal the property of their subjects. So... How do we distinguish between stealing and between legitimate exercise of government power? So, in the U.S., there's a whole tradition that income tax was unconstitutional until they passed passed an amendment declaring it constitutional. It was unconstitutional. We have all kinds of rules that that limit. We have written rules. We have a written constitution. We have uh, that limits the 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 rights, limits the power of government. Other nations have unwritten constitutions. England, Israel have uh, have a more nebulous uh, constitutional notions that judges that judges uh, decide to apply to decide whether they accept something the government does or not. Halakha also, as, as we've covered in the past, Halakha also grapples with this question. What is considered a legitimate exercise of government power? What is considered uh, theft under the cover of law? So it's a, diff- it's a very difficult question. It's, it's a fascinating question, a very difficult one. So one rule, Halacha says, is that laws which arbitrarily distinguish between citizens would be considered unconstitutional and exhaling. Uh, so if the government would say, Ruvain owes a, a million dollars in taxes tomorrow, everyone else, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, John, Thomas, and Steve, only owe a thousand dollars, and Ruvain owes a million, without providing any justification for why Ruvain owes a million, that post can explicitly say is, is, is void. That is considered arbitrary. In America, we call that a bill of attainder, where they single out one person by name, and that's void. On the other hand, as we know, uh, legislators can be very clever in getting around in such rules. If, if they want to tax, if a legislator doesn't like Facebook, they can't just single out Facebook and say we're taxing Facebook, but they can say any company with above 2 billion in, uh, in users and uh, between 500 million and 700 million in monthly revenue, 
they can carefully design a set of so-called objective criteria that will target a uh, specific company. And I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not an expert in tax policy, and I, I can't really, I, I don't know enough to know, you know what, what are the rules here, what's legal, what's not, what, what's not legal, what's legitimate, what's not legitimate. But yes, it, it is true that the defining what is a legitimate use of government power, what's an illegitimate use, that's why we have uh, Supreme Court and appellate courts and all kinds of uh, Fed circuits and so on, that, wh whose job it is to define what is legal government action and what is not. And halacha has its rules as well, which are not maybe as extensively developed, but in halacha it's a valid question as well. A very much a valid question. So returning to the Nesivas, yes, so the Max's basic point I think is a very good one. The Nesivas claims that if the government owes people money, they can just erase that obligation by taxing. It depends how they tax. If, 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 the, if the government owes a specific bank a million dollars, they borrowed from the Rothschilds, they borrowed from uh, Chase Bank a million dollars. So if the government would simply say, okay, New tax rule. Chase owes a million dollars in taxes tomorrow. That would certainly be invalid. It would be legally invalid. It would be halakhically invalid. It would be a bill of attainder or whatever it's called. It would be a halakha would certainly throw that out. If the government instead would say, okay, we owe Chase a million dollars. Everyone now owes us, uh, every, every citizen of the country now owes us an extra hundred dollars in taxes. That's what the government does every day. They raise taxes to cover, the, to cover their debts. That's why, if, that's why some people are against uh, government debt, because it means that the government will have to raise taxes to, to repay that debt. So Nesivas is not very clear here what he means. Nesivas just says that, the, that, that he can exempt himself from the debt by raising taxes. So presumably it means he would raise taxes on the Jewish community. Postkin do actually allow... This is something that does not sit well with uh, our modern notions of, uh, of equality, but Postkin do actually say that uh, discrimination based on religion or nationality is legitimate. The government can say, we're taxing all Jews, we're taxing all Somalians, we're taxing all, uh, all Englishmen. The government is allowed to say that we are taxing a specific group. We think of that as being highly unfair, but the Shulchan Aruch explicitly allows that. Shulchan Aruch says you can't tax an individual arbitrarily, but you're allowed to tax a specific, even Jews. The Halacha is very fair about this. Halacha says, Halacha specifically says, if a government says, Goyim don't owe this tax and Jews do, or Goyim pay 5% and Jews pay 10%, that's legitimate. So the Nesivas presumably means that in this case, the debt was to the Jewish community as a whole. And if the Duke says, okay, Jewish community, I'm doubling your taxes next year, then uh, that would be legal. He has the right to set whatever tax rates he wants on the community. Now, halacha allows this? Halacha allows... Allows discrimination based on religion? Yes. Allow, allows, allows government to... What, what's the principle there? Well, what's, what, what's the idea of fairness and, and treating people in a manner that is consistent across the board? How does halacha uh, point to that? Where, where, how does it arrive at that? I'm confused. Halacha doesn't have exactly the same notions of fairness that uh, we do today. Halacha feels that discriminating between individuals is unfair. But that halacha seems to fail that it's legitimate to discriminate against, a, against an, entire, uh, an entire community. Halacha, halacha seems to fail that's legitimate. I, I agree. It, it's a little troubling to uh, our sensibilities. But, uh, but, but, but that, is, that is, as I understand it, the, the, the halachic view. So, Rabbi, you, you had mentioned um, prose bowl earlier. Um, it's just, just as a prose bowl, you register a loan uh, with a Besden, and it, it exempts the loan uh, from being uh, canceled during Shemitah. Mm -hmm. Is there some kind of prose bowl that in the Maharik's case um, 
a document could have been registered with the best in saying uh, that there's no, you, you know, you can't be mayayish on a loan, or it's exempt from you. So, so, so the question Jason is raising is, is there any mechanism that somebody could use in, in a debt that would... Uh, that would avoid Yeish from damaging his debt? Is there any way to contract around Yeish, so to speak? Is there any legal mechanism somebody could use to avoid having Yeish? If he, if he anticipates such a problem, for example, if he wants to make his loan uh, airtight and bulletproof and not subject to cancellation by Yeish, is there anything he could do, any mechanism he could do to avoid Yeish? I don't actually know of one. I, I don't know offhand. I, don't see, I haven't seen any discussion of it. I'd have to think about it further, but I, I'm not aware of any of, of any mechanism that would work to to uh, to, to to block uh, to block Yeish from taking effect. Thank you. Thanks. So, so just to summarize, I understand what's bothering Max that it, it seems very unfair by modern standards. Again, the Nasivus is not getting into all this. The Nasivus's comments are quite brief. He just says that uh, he just says that the tax power can override his uh, his uh, his obligations. But so that's how the Nasivus learns the Marik, that the Marik, is taught, Marik doesn't seem to say this. Marik seems to say at length that Yeish works for a chov in general. He brings all kinds of rias from Bab It doesn't say anything about the special case of a duke. But the Nasivus at least wants to agree with the Marik. In this one specific case, the Nasivus seems to feel that his tax power, a legitimate exercise of his tax power, Dina de Malchusa, he says, would, 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 work, would work to allow a government to... Uh, to, uh, avoid, to basically nullify its debts by, by, by means of raising taxes. Now, obviously, you can, today we sell debts, we sell bonds, so the original debt, the original, uh, the original people who made the loan to the government could have sold their debt to the Chinese, who were not, who were not under the jurisdiction of this duke, and then, obviously, he would have no way of canceling this debt by taxing the Jews, he can't tax the Chinese. So the, the Nasivas, right, you wonder about this. If they, if, if they uh, as soon as they made the debt, he has the power to cancel it right then by, by levying taxes on them. They could argue, I guess, you know, we'll sell the debt. He says, okay, well, I'm still going to tax you to pay it back. So I'm not sure. I, I admit that I don't fully understand the, the logic of the Nasivas here, but this is the Nasivas' point. And in general, he says the Chacham Tzvi is right and the other Akronim are right, that there's no Yeish, that there's no Yeish on debts, except for this one specific case, of the of the sar because when you owe the sar money you're at his mercy because he legally has the right to increase your tax burden to uh, to basically neutralize any debt that you have